Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of Resolute TV. I'm your Freedom Chef, and I'll be your host for this journey over at least the next 10 weeks, hopefully more. What we've got coming up is an extremely cool lineup. It's a bit unprecedented, and hopefully it's gonna get bigger, badder, and better. David Lionhelm, former federal senator for the Liberal Democrats, will be joining us to talk about guns and gun control. He's making a, an exclusive announcement on our behalf, so we're really excited to have David. We've got Father Chris Yates, who's um, a Catholic priest, and he's gonna to talk to us about religious freedoms and football. Bit random, but sounds pretty good and a lot of fun with for me. We've also got MMA Bellator superstar, former women's boxing world champion, Arlene Angerfist Blenker. She's making a couple of appearances throughout the show. We're really excited to be working with her. Health, fitness, boxing, commitment, all the things that we value. We've got Stefan Levera, who is a Bitcoin expert. He's going to be brilliant. If you've never thought about Bitcoin, now's probably a good time to do it. He's going to guide us through. As a, as a bit of a thing, I'm going to work through each of the steps with Stefan so that I'll hopefully be a, a Bitcoin guy by the end as well. We're also talking to Stephen Wells, who is an author uh, about a, a book about climate change, and he's a general thinker of wrong think, which really excites me because I love people who think outside the box. Stephen is definitely in that category, so we're lucky to have him. We've also got Dan Taxationist Theft Berman, a 2020 libertarian candidate in the United States presidential election. So think Trump, think Biden, think Dan Taxationist Theft Berman. That's our, our initial lineup. We've also got some small businesses that we're going to feature throughout because with all this um, illness that's been going on, there's been an awful lot of craziness that we would like to combat or at least challenge and, and give them some version of a platform. So we're really looking forward to it. Thanks for coming aboard. Let's get started. Hey gang, so here, here's my discussion with Dan Taxationist Theft Berman. There are going to be extra clips. You'll be able to see them on the website and we'll be doing little productions afterward. But here's Dan and myself talking about libertarianism and the 2020 elections. So the government's, government's a bit responsible for all this. Tell us, tell us what you think. Yeah, so um, most of the problems that we have in our lives are all, all created by government. Um, the you know right now they've shut down the entire economy in a lot of places, and a lot of people are struggling to figure out how they're going to pay their rent, how they're going to feed themselves. And if it weren't for these government programs, we wouldn't have these enormous debts in the United States. It's uh, you know most people when they buy a house, it's third debt. And that means they have to worry about how to pay the mortgage. If they've paid the mortgage off, now they have to worry about how they're going to pay the property tax. Um, and if they can't afford to get in here at all, because these these programs that you know the government backs the banks so that they make a lot bigger loans, it increases the values of the houses or the prices of the houses. It makes it much more difficult for people to get into those houses in the first place. And so uh, a lot of people can't buy their own homes and a lot of people just rent. 87% of the country is in debt. Um, and... Because of that, everyone is is living on basically month to month, paycheck to paycheck. And uh, this is a government created problem and it's created through a system of, of over taxation. So if we eliminate this, we put people back on a on, a, you know, uh, we put their lives back on a solid foundation where they're able to have their lives. And if they lose their job for whatever reason, uh, for an extended period of time, it's not that big of an impact on their lives. Um, and, and we really need to understand that because while this uh, this virus thing might not happen every year, might not happen every decade or every century, there are always natural disasters, um, car accidents that might that might prevent you from working, um, or just an illness.
illness or a death in the family, whatever it is, nobody should be in that much debt that you can't take that much time off of work because that, that really puts us into a system that's like slavery. We're worried about working, 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 and not worried about about taking care of our own uh, our own families, our, our own health, um, and just spending time enjoying life. This is all a government problem. So eliminating a lot of these programs that they have is going to fix a lot of this. Hundred percent. I sort of agree with you. So, so who who are you? How did you end up one getting the Kahuna's to run for the you know United States presidency? Because let's be fair, the average Joe doesn't think of themselves, let's go and do it. I sort of did something a little bit similar over here in Australia, and I sort of ran in the federal elections as well, because I don't mind stirring the pot. But what, awesome. what made you do awesome. what, what what made Dan Berman sort of, you know, have a crack at this sort of thing? And, you know, what was your background as a kid? Did you grow up being a libertarian, you know, I really don't like government very much, or did you grow up sort of and develop along the way? How, how did this how did this all come about? Right. So I was actually um I grew up in in California, which is very left, very, uh, very kind of socialist or, or Democrat. Um, it's a blue state. And so being around all that, I was always concerned with social issues. And I was always, you know, why doesn't the government just just print a bunch of money and take care of the homeless and, and feed everybody who's who's starving and everything else? Um, that was just kind of the mentality, because these were the problems that I was faced with when I was young. And, you know, of course, not knowing how politics or economics works, those are those are the quick solutions that you jump to. And really, we see a lot of people who are pushing for those same solutions um, in the real world, which is kind of scary. Um, but from that point, I started to I wanted to build a business because I didn't want to spend my life in um, in, a, in a place of poverty. I wanted to be able to, to build something for myself um, so I, I wouldn't be worried about making money for the rest of my life. Um, so I became an entrepreneur. I tried starting businesses. I did so many different things. And of course, the government was always there telling me, well, you need a permit for this. You need a license. You need to pay taxes and all these other things. And, you know, when it when it gets personal like that, you sit there and wonder, like, why should I pay you taxes for this? What are you contributing to my business that I should have to pay taxes? Um, I'm, and of course, I'm working people, my ass off. Yeah, exactly. A yeah, lot of and you're, and you're taking a cut. The, the exactly. business partner nobody wants. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, they, they want to take they, they want to claim ownership of your business. Like Obama said, you didn't make that. We made that. Um, it's, you know, it's this idea that that all of society helped to build the business. Yeah, they did. Um, but when I build my business, the way I repay that to society is my business purchases goods and services from other businesses. We hire employees who work for us and we exchange uh, money with them. That's how we repay society. We pay for the things that we need to actually use. We don't just give money to these politicians who are going to go recklessly spend it trying to invade other countries and and you know uh, uh, pay off subsidies to their friends' businesses and billions of dollars into into these corporations. Um, that's that's not what we do. That's not how we repay it to society, and it's not repaying it to society. Um, it's it's just that's the illusion that the politicians have created for us. So I started really getting into this. I started fighting the IRS. Um, and you know the the taxes and and everything else, and then I started learning about how the system actually works, and I noticed that really a lot of this is made through empty threats. They have, um, you know, they'll enforce laws. It's kind of like if a bully comes up to you and says, "Give me your lunch money." You don't have to give him your lunch money, right? There's no law that says you have to. But of course, if he says, "Well, that's the law," yeah. well, I'm bigger than you and enough, leaner than you, yeah. Yeah, then you're gonna you're gonna cave in and say, oh well, he says that's the law. I'm gonna, and that's exactly what the government does a lot of times. They actually lie about what the law is. Um, they send enforcers out to, that violate the Constitution and violate your rights. And um, 
this happens all the time, but they're intimidating you into complying with things that you don't have to comply with. And once I realized this and I stopped complying, I started, um, I started, you know, just a full on retreat from government. I was, um, I got rid of my, my driver's license, my vehicle registrations, everything else. And I, I decided I wanted as little participation as little participation with government as possible. Um, and in doing so, I realized how, you know, how little power they actually have to enforce a lot of these things. And then I started talking about it to other people and, you know, just the, the, the way that other people lit up understanding that, you know, um, this idea of freedom means we shouldn't, we shouldn't have these bullies that work for the government that run around telling us how to live our lives. Um, you know, people just lit up and they, they responded so well to this message um, that I continued to spread it. And this, this message has actually spread all over the world. Um, uh, of course, in Australia, um, people all over Europe, um, Asia, Africa, um, and South America are really, they're really tuning into this message and they're really supporting it. So um, it, it seemed um, because the federal government is the basis for a lot of the problems, like a lot of the major problems in the United States, I figured that's where, that's where I could attack and say, these are the programs that we need to get rid of. And so it just kind of became obvious that running for president would be a great way to do that. Um, getting into politics is something I never wanted to do. Um, I, you know, I, I used to like uh, movies, making them, watching them, uh, video games and computers, playing them, programming them and, and, and these sorts of things. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a technology nerd um, and I never, never thought I would be getting into politics, but, you know, after a certain point, it's like you, you recognize that this has to be stopped and, if, and you know, nobody else is going to do it because the people who are actually politicians and lawyers and these other things, um, they're fighting against us, every single one of them. Uh, you know, there's, there's not, we don't have somebody who's fighting for us. And so if that has to be me, that has to be me. So I got up and did it. Hey guys, I am Dia Beltran, co-host to Resolute TV alongside Dean, the Freedom Chef, and I am here to tell you about Arlene Angafis Blanco. We're very excited to have her on the show. She is a two-time former world boxing champion and is a current fighter for the Bellator MMA. And we got her, pro woman, it's awesome. Take a look. Hey, you're welcome. It's uh, great to have you on. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, who are you? What are you all about? I've got a bit of an idea, but it's pretty impressive. Um, well, formally, I like to say I'm a professional athlete, but if I want to scare people, I say I'm a cage fighter. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a professional MMA fighter. Um, I started off with boxing, so I'm also a professional boxer, a two-time world boxing champion. Um, but the last few years, I've been focusing on MMA. I'm signed to um, Bellator MMA in America. Um, I'm currently ranked number four in the world in my weight division. Um, and is it yeah, rude I'm to ask in this, in this context, is it rude to ask what weight division? I know you're no, not ask the lady, but... <laughs> I even get the questions, I'll sit, people look at me and I'm like, what are you weighing at the moment? And I'm like, oh, is that because like, I look overweight? No, I fight, um, I fight at 66 kilos, which is featherweight um, yep. in MMA, um, and that's 66 kilos in boxing is well to weight. So yeah, right. I fought so, anywhere yeah. sort of... Um, like as an amateur boxer, back when I was an amateur boxer, there were only three weight divisions in the Olympics. Um, it was under, I think it was under 57, which I don't even remember the last time I weighed that, under 61 and under 75s. So I actually stepped up and fought in under 75s. Um, and I fought as low as 61 kilos. So I fought between 61 and 75 kilos. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty exciting. So who's who, who 
um, in the world stage would people know that are, are in your sort of weight class? Who is in your division? If you're ranked number four, who are you gunning for? Um, well, everyone, well, most people that follow the sport know Chris Cyborg. She's actually going to be my next opponent. Um, she's the number one in the, the weight division. Actually, in saying that, I guess Amanda Nunes is technically number one um, from the UFC because she's um, the bantamweight and featherweight champion. But um, Chris Cyborg, yeah, she's the number one. Um, for anyone that sort of knows the sport, I mean, back in the day, everyone used to say to me, you know, when are you fighting Ronda Rousey? Because she was sort of like, um, you know, pretty famous. And she put you know, she put women's MMA on the map for all of us and sort of led the way with, um, you know, leading, like headlining shows and, and showing the world that women can perform and, uh, you know, fight just as good as the guys. Yeah, she really did. She was very badass, no doubt about that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But now she's playing with the WWE when she's yeah. not farming. When she's not farming, so are you a farmer I think as she's well? Focusing on the farming and the, the home life at the moment, and yeah, good on her. Uh, she looks really happy, and you know that's at the end of the day, that's what life's about. She, um, you know, she did what she did in MMA, um, paved the way for us fighters, made a name for herself in the um, wrestling, and yeah, it's. Um, she, she does seem to be having a good time and well earned. Yeah, yeah, good on her. Well earned. Now it's your turn. Yeah, that's it. Um, so uh, on top of on top of being an MMA ass kicking machine, I suppose we're allowed to use that term. Um, you're also a mum. I am. I do. I've got two children, um, Kayla and Kian. Um, I was a mum at a young age, so I sort of started the home life, um, being a stay at home mum at an early age, and then sort of um, went into. Then I separated from the kids' father, so then was a single mum, and then I sort of. Um, yeah, that's when my fighting started. So, the last eleven years was that was that was that with the kid's father, or was that just you know in the ring? Uh, <laughs> you weren't bashing him up too much, I hope. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the fighting's definitely just for the um, for the age. But don't get me wrong; there's probably times that I do want to um like. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's every relationship, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so yeah, I've been fighting now for eleven years. Um, yeah, for the first well, six or seven years of that, I was a single mum chasing my tail, but um, running around like a headless chook. But yeah, no, I am in a happy relationship now. So I um, no longer call myself the, the single mum that fights, but um, it definitely sort of paved the way for um, the early days and, you know, the, the hard work. And, and, you know, when times start getting a little bit tough now, I sort of sit back and look at, you know, how hard things were back in the early days and, you um, yeah, I've got it easy compared to them, so I tell myself to wake up. <laughs> Alright guys, my interview with Stefan Levera. He's the Bitcoin superstar. We're about to tune in. What a great guy. Check out his website, check out his podcast, and join us all on Resolute TV. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting here on the Freedom Chef Dean McRae, and I'm sitting here with Bitcoin guru, I'm sure he'll clarify his qualifications and details in a minute. <laughs> Stefan Levera, uh, thank you for being here with us on Resolute TV for our episode one, our inaugural episode showing 7.30 on you, uh, YouTube Sunday nights. Well, thanks, thanks for, for having me, on. Dean. Yeah, it's, uh, good to chat with you and uh, I'm, I think it'll be a, a great uh, chance to talk about Bitcoin. Well, uh, they tell me that's your area of expertise, that and some libertarian uh, philosophies. So we'd, we'd love to hear about it. I've, I'm sort of no Bitcoin expert by any stretch, but I'd love to learn. And I know a lot of people who you mentioned the term Bitcoin and they sort of, they get pretty nervous. But 
if ever there was a time to be nervous, they're nervous now about multiple other things. So let's let's um, let's teach them about Bitcoin. Yeah, let's do that. So look, I guess just a little bit about me. I'm known within the Bitcoin world because I run a Bitcoin podcast. It's it's called the Stefan Levera podcast, and I host many of the well-known Bitcoin people and uh, Austrian economics people on there as well. And I approach it. I, I am a libertarian as well, and so. I've, I'm taking more of like what you might call a techno-libertarian approach. It's this idea of, hey, what if we wanted to create this parallel or alternative money system that didn't really rely on the existing system and it allowed people to send money anywhere around the world? And it has two components to it that you can think of, right? You can think of it like it's got a unit of account, like there's actually a, a token, a monetary unit, and it's also a payment network around the world. And so... But the cool thing about Bitcoin is that it is strictly limited supply. There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoins. Now, as we speak today, something like 18.3 million or whatever have been issued of that 21 million. And the, the final amounts will be issued out over the next 100 or so years, right? So it's basically this network that you can participate in and think of it like a bearer asset. Do you know what a bearer asset is? No, no, explain for me and the audience. Yep, so think of it like a bearer asset is something that you can hold that is not somebody else's liability. A good example is gold, right? You can hold that gold and, you know, it, it, it's not somebody else's liability. And that's different because in, in a fiat money system, a lot of people's assets are also somebody else's liabilities, right? So if yep, you have an yep. account with the bank, you have however many dollars in the bank, like whatever, you know, uh, yeah, you look like a rich guy, you know, you might have, you know, $2,000 in your bank account. Living, living large, mate, living large, yeah. <laughs> and so that bank has that liability to you for the $2,000 in your bank account. But with Bitcoin, it's different. You can actually hold it and store it yourself and send it around the world in a way that is very, very difficult to stop. And so that's a very powerful thing because it means now it opens up this whole world of internet commerce. And as you've seen, nowadays people are getting deplatformed and payments censored and so on. Bitcoin is an option for them, for anyone like that. Uh, and you obviously people might have heard things like the Silk Road and so on and stuff like that. Obviously, it's not all like illegal stuff, right? It's actually there's a lot of people who just want to use it as a long-term investment or even thinking of it like a long-term savings. So that's in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how most people are thinking about it. So, like, if I had to sort of summarize that, I would say it's it's like this savings technology and a payments technology. It's it's both of those two things combined into into one. Yeah, it sounds it, look, it sounds pretty brilliant. So, I've got the libertarian uh, streak in me fairly firmly. So, I love the idea of anything that's a bit off grid, a little bit out of out of kilter of what what mainstream mm. Australia and the rest of the world's doing. And with everything going on currently with the economic economic problems we're having, and they're, they're using using this virus as part of that, but um, how, how safe is Bitcoin? How, for my mother or somebody who's not this way inclined, how do you, how do you explain to them the simplicity of moving over? You told me off, off air that it was fairly simple and fairly easy to understand. How would you explain it to my mum or my nana or somebody somebody who's really cool but not that trendy? <laughs> well, so it's right now, it's perhaps it can be difficult for someone at that level, like mum or grandma level. Uh, it's going to take time for it to become easier and easier. 
but there's also a lot of opportunity right now because there's a lot of upside. Now, in terms of how safe is it, it's... Uh, it's, the thing is, it trades like a normal market. So the the price of it is it can move up and down. And because it's so young, it's very volatile. However, people who have bought and held for a longer to period longer period of time, they've they've done pretty well out of it. And we are seeing a halving coming soon. So like historically, like we've seen like a bull run happen after that halving. So again, it's. You don't know if it always will be like that, but basically that's a time now where a lot of people are excited about Bitcoin. It's like a good time, if anything, uh, like buying time-wise. Personally, I'm trying to accumulate more. Uh, so yeah, but anyway, in terms of how people can use it, basically the way you do it is you might start by downloading a Bitcoin wallet. You can download one on your phone. So a good example on Android is this one called Samurai Wallet. Another one for iPhone, you might look up something called Blockstream Green or another one called HODL Wallet, like H-O-D-L Wallet. So there's okay. some good example ones that you can just download. And you can go to a Bitcoin meetup, right? Obviously, right now during all the Corona stuff, we're not having meetups and so on. But well, we're meeting up now. Yeah. This is this is why we're doing this. So you know, yeah, we, exactly. We can do that. Well, we have yeah. a Bitcoin club. Exactly. Or if you know someone, you can just buy. You know, you can like say transfer them ten dollars AUD, and then they can send you ten dollars Bitcoin, just so you can get a sense of how it works, right? And so each Bitcoin is divisible down to a hundred million satoshis. So think of it like you got dollars and cents. You got bitcoins and satoshis or sats as we say okay and so the way bitcoin that's kind of the basic high level and then as you get more advanced into it then you start looking more about okay how do i secure that better and my, maybe i'll start using what's called a hardware wallet and maybe once you've learned how to use a hardware wallet then the next level is running a bitcoin node which is actually validating your own bitcoins now again this is all some of that stuff's more advanced and i'm not expecting people yeah, to kind of, of go zero to hero it's a progression journey so i would say you start well, well, what i'm, what I'm hope, wallet, yeah. hoping with having you on here would be obviously we're planning 10 weeks up up front would you be willing every every sort of week or or uh you know just a couple of real basic pointers for the average joe so step one guys if you're interested in bitcoin this is the first thing you need to look in so the the bitcoin wallets you just spoke about so next week maybe you you jump on and we, we talk about what your second step would be and why and how it works you actually sent me some documentation about bitcoin i was talking about um i have a bit of an interest in micro nations and was sort of i've been studying them a little bit i find them really interesting concept and i sort of i've i contacted you this is sort of one of the ways we've we've started to get to know each other and um it sounds like a really great isolated system that works outside of traditional i'd love to be able to share with our ongoing audience uh bit by bit sort of an idiot's guide if you will because i'm an idiot and i'll be learning all about it as we go and i'm looking forward to it i think it'll be great yeah i'm looking forward to that i'm absolutely happy to do some ongoing you know week by week here's your next step here's the next thing to learn learn this little concept and then hopefully by the end of it everyone has built up their knowledge and their ability to transact in this alternative system and I to hold your world. Yeah. hey gang this is the discussion of myself with Stephen, climate change denying worlds he's a wrong think expert and i had a really great interesting discussion with him it's pretty deep pretty full-on but he seems like a really switched on guy so let's let's have a look Okay, ladies and gentlemen, and Resolute TV episode number one. Uh, our current guest is Stephen Wells. 
author of a book called Confessions of a Climate Change Denier. Um, he's a, a thinker of inappropriate thoughts, a bit of a general troublemaker, he tells me, and um, a pretty cool, fun guy from what I've seen. And I think he's going to add a lot to this program. So, Stephen, can we talk to the people about who you are, what you're about, uh, what got you to this point, and go from there? Yeah, look, about uh, six years ago, I, I got interested in the climate change debate just by getting uh, caught online by somebody who knew more than me. And I thought, well, I'll go and research that and uh, I'll put you in your place next time I meet you. Ended up finding out that I was completely wrong and uh, and then had to go and learn all about um, atmospheric physics for six years, uh, which ended up me writing a book. And along the way, I've sort of found out why uh, the climate change scam was being orchestrated, which was basically to bring in a one world uh, government, uh, get rid of national borders and just bring in a new financial system. And then with all of this stuff with the COVID-19 stuff going on, um, it's become pretty clear that they've uh, they've found a much faster way to get to what they want. And uh, that's what's currently being implemented now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, look, it, it always takes a big man to get a, have a debate and have somebody kick your backside in it and, and reevaluate your position and go for it, which is pretty cool. Um, now, you've, you've brought up the current current... COVID, and I've sort of noticed a lot of your public posts and things like that. Um, you, you seem pretty staunch on what you think is going to happen and why. Yeah. Um, what I now, I, I've done a little bit of research into it, but the show is not about me. It's about these interesting people such as yourselves. What, what gives you these thoughts and what makes you think that this is the sort of thing that's going on? Well, basically, there is uh, an Imperial College of London uh, report uh, about how to respond to the COVID to the to the coronavirus, uh, as well as previous uh, documentation that leads back about ten years, all the way to the Rockefeller Foundation and a, um, a, a, a scenario that they put out in two thousand and eleven. And so, basically, all the advice that the government are getting, they're getting from somewhere. It's not like it's just come out of nowhere and, that, and nobody's thought about what will happen with pandemics before. So, people have been funding a totalitarian solution to a pandemic for about the past 10 years and what would they what would they recommend governments should do should a pandemic come again I wouldn't, of course pandemics are always going to come you know we're always going to have new viruses new illnesses that we have to go like you go back through the last 100 years there's plenty of uh, times when uh, an illness has come around and made a lot of people sick the difference is that these people have decided beforehand that when the next one comes, this is how they're going to respond to it. And so it's all mapped out what's going to happen. It's documented. I can, you know, people can go and look at the links. They can look at all of the uh, all of the advice that's been written for health advisors to the government. And obviously the government themselves, when they get advice, they have to get official advice. And if the only official advice in town says lock everything down, um, install a police state you know uh without saying it's a police state then that's what they do and that's what's currently happening and it's it's pretty much happening and has happened up until this point exactly as all of these um scenario pre-scenario documents lay out it should happen yeah right i mean it's a, look it's obviously a scary time for people anyway but i have a feeling that some people have a different reason for being scared than others 
Uh, there seems to be a large portion of the community that are happy to, happily towing the line on on this um, on this concept. I, I we've been told to lock down. It's for our own good. It's for our, our safety. It's you know, aren't we so lucky to be so safe and protected? And then there's people a little bit more like yourself, and people like myself are a little more skeptical and a little more open to looking at other things and possible ulterior motives. Now I, I don't buy into the conspiracy theorists of the whole thing. But I do, as a libertarian, have a natural aversion to a police state in a totalitarian state. Uh, how much further do you think they'll go or how, how, how long will it take before they give some freedom back and in what capacity do you think they will, if they will at all? Well, it's going to be staggered. So um, the Imperial College of London report, which is what they're all, all the governments are basically basing their decisions upon, uh, it's a staggered lockdown, so we'll get the first ease up of the lockdown probably, you know, be, you know, between sort of June and August, depending on the country. Um, so July is the rough estimate for the first end of the lockdown, which is to deal with the initial surge of the virus. There'll be uh, a reprieve. Uh, some of the restrictions will be lifted. How many? Don't know. All of them, some of them, uh, but there'll be a reprieve. Um, and then the case numbers will go up again and then the lockdown will happen again. And basically what has been planned out is six lockdowns between now and the next 18 months, two years. Um, and the, the end goal of this particular virus is to have a vaccine out there. And it's very, very likely by the time that vaccine comes around that you being released from lockdown permanently will be dependent upon you agreeing to take the vaccine. So, so forced injections of, of whatever whatever substance. Not, not so much not so much forced, but uh, if it is like it, it won't be like forced. You must. It's like uh, if you you don't have to. It's just if you don't, then you'll have to you stay can. in the lockdown scenario. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's it's yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be conditional release is the way it will work. Uh, but and, funnily enough, I heard a little uh, report from a, a mid tier mining company. Uh, over in your your home state, that's apparently started sending around memos to all staff that they, uh, if they wish to maintain employment with with said mining company, that they are obligated to all have the flu, take the vaccine. flu vaccine. Yeah, take the flu is, vaccine. Which is yeah, yeah um, it could it could be perceived as a way of training people to getting used to pretty well. Listen, you will take what we tell you to take when we tell you to take it, which um, rub, certainly rubs me the me the wrong way. Well, um, it, it should rub you. It should rub you the one way that you, you know you getting a job is conditional on you taking medication against your will. Yeah, you know it doesn't, doesn't matter whether you believe that vaccines are dangerous or whether you believe vaccines are the greatest thing since sliced bread. Makes no difference. The point is, is that it is already legal um, to make your employment conditional on having a vaccine. And that which, which is considering, very, which considering very all the things, of course, and all the things that allegedly your employment can't be conditional on, it's ironic yeah. that the things that they're making them con conditional on uh, actually involves them penetrating the human body with with a substance, as opposed to having wrong think or uh, being gay, straight, lesbian, black, white, a monkey's uncle, whatever the case may be. It's it's a terrifying yeah. thought. I mean, uh, as my libertarian base. Oh, I feel that's my base, home home base philosophy. And there are little little variations, but you know, if if you're not harming somebody else, 
you should be free to go to work and you should be free to pay your bills and, uh, pay your this, and do all of these things. But they've got around that, haven't they? Because they are now saying that if you don't take the vaccine, you are a danger to other people. And yes. therefore, and that, and that, so that's the argument you've gone in. So they, they've uh, they've sidestepped that libertarian argument and basically said, look, uh, they started off with aged care homes and the yep. nurses and hospitals, and then it's all hospital workers and it's the mining industry. And then the next and thing you know, it'll be all jobs. Of course. And ironically enough, as I've, I've noticed, the argument with climate change used to be anybody who didn't just jump on. Now, I'm still I'm sort of a bit centrist on it. I'm not not as far convinced, but I haven't researched it as much as you have. So, you know, I'm still sort of open on, on the idea. But the arguments, the way they used to win the argument was saying, if you're not all for the climate change narrative, you're an evil person who wants people to die. Now, they're already doing this with this particular virus and yep. or this illness. And if, if you're not for a complete lockdown of all society, you want people to die. You want your nana to die. You want your relatives to die. You're an evil person. And I don't necessarily feel I want people to die. But an, an ugly truth is that they all will. We all will. Yeah. I will. Yeah, well, no, no, that's, that's, nobody gets out of life alive. And that's that's the other thing about this about this particular strategy that they're using. What the politicians are not telling you, um, which is in all of the documents, is that this strategy to basically um, spread out the disease over a longer period of time, it's not actually designed to save anybody's life. It's designed to save the hospital system from collapse. That's that's all it's designed for. It's designed to make sure that there are enough beds at once. It's designed to make sure that there's enough ventilators at once. Now, if you think about it, you know, okay, you, even if you say, okay, well, that's that's valid and the, the virus is real and it, there's nothing dodgy about the statistics. If you believe all of the government statistics and then you say, okay, well, the problem, if we identify the problem is that there's not enough ventilators for a, a crisis. So like if everyone gets sick at once, there's not enough ventilators. All right. So you got, but the only solution that's been given to this problem of not being enough ventilators is to destroy the economy. $1.5 trillion of borrowed, printed, fake fiat money has been printed because there aren't enough ventilators. Don't you think it makes more sense to have a manufacturing push emergency to make some more ventilators? Wouldn't that cost that's, a lot less? Wouldn't that take less than two years? 100%, I, 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 would, I would be 100% on board with that as a concept. And funnily enough, a couple of our other guests who are yet to, yet to formally announce that they're on board uh, are actually involved in, um, they know a lot about the cash bans and these, yep. these sort of things. Yep. They all link in, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, there is a big link in. And a big part of what you were saying before about the only reason they're, they're dragging it out is to... Um, is, is for hospital beds. I would say. I would say the other other thing that they're doing is to to get people used to the fact that they are going to be in lockdowns. Well, and that they when, are, when I say uh, that's the only reason, that's that's the only official reason. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not. It's got fuck all to do with any of it, really. You know, like it's well, not like they haven't got enough. It's just that's what they're saying they haven't got enough of. But that's, that's their excuse it. that they're using. But yes, cash bans, uh, microchips, uh, forced vaccinations, forced testing. 
um, you know, a new, glo new global financial system, uh, get rid of, uh, put, put new um, bureau uh, global bureaucracy in place. It's all there. It's all happening at once. Um, and the excuse, the single excuse for all of these lockdowns and all of this totalitarianism and all of these travel bans and everything else and all of these shutdowns of businesses, the single excuse is not enough ventilators. That's all they've got. And it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's disgusting, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm certainly empathetic to, to your thoughts and your arguments. That's why I invited you to be part of this program, Stephen. So what, I'm, what we're, we're sort of on, on time for tonight's episode, but what I'm, what I'm thinking or what I'd love, which is why I sort of invited you, is if we have a little segment of, of you know, your, your controversial or outside-the-box thoughts each week for the next 10 weeks at least or nine weeks after tonight, if, you, if you're happy to do it, I'd love to do this with you each week and we can just talk about where they're up to, what's happening, how it's all going, if there's any developments, anything that people should be, even if they don't agree with you, which is a big part of this program, the idea is not to agree necessarily with everybody, but to be willing to discuss it. Um, is, are, you, are you happy to be on board with, with that as a concept? Yeah, I can, come, I can come on once a week. Sounds great. Man, it should be well. We're, we're all on lockdown, so we've got plenty of time. So we might, as well be, we might as well not be happy little dissidents. There's not as if there's any jobs out there to go to. No, no, there's very, very few. So on that basis, um, guys, check out Stephen's book, uh, Confessions of a Climate Change Denier. If you, uh, even if you want to question the man, I'm sure he's happy to have, have a discussion with you. I, I don't think he's, he's hoping everybody's going to all of a sudden line up and agree with him because he's not that deluded. But he is more than happy to, to put his opinions out there, whether they're popular opinions or not. And at Resolute TV, the idea is for us to be able to do that. So uh, thanks, Stephen, for coming on tonight. We'll see you next week. Um, Cheers, and ladies and gentlemen, check out Stephen Wells and his book. Thanks, Dean. So the other thing we're doing here for people at Resolute TV is if you are a small business owner, moderate business owner, independent thinker, if you want to create little 10, 30 second ads that you'd like, to, like us to incorporate, share with our audience, we'd be more than happy to do so. We're also happy to share you on our Facebook pages and things like that because we truly believe in independent spirit and hard work. Thanks very much, guys. Welcome aboard. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to Resolute TV. 
Uh, this is our first inaugural episode. One of our first inaugural guests is Father Chris Yates, um, Catholic priest, Manchester United fan. So I thought I'd, out of uh, you know, encouragement, show you the, the Arsenal jersey. Um, now, a few people have questioned me about having having Father Chris on, um, considering that it may be a bit boring or a bit uninteresting, or why would you have this guy on? Obviously, there's a bit of a stigma attached to, to your profession. Uh, let me assure you this guy is anything but boring. And Father Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. This is our first interview. So what we're going to try and do is sort of do a real introductory vibe, let people know who you are. And then hopefully over the next 10 weeks, we'll just do little bits and pieces of, of uh, religious freedom type discussions and, and other theological stuff. Sure. Well, um, well the, the main reason that uh, all my life begins with the fact that I am a Manchester United fan, as you just said, uh, because um, those who know English accents uh, well will, will be able to hear that I am from Manchester. Uh, although I've spent most of my life kind of on the edge of everything I've been involved in. And, and, and so just uh, like that with my birth, I was born on the edge of Manchester, so you can't win. I'm from a place called Altrincham, uh, which is in the historic county of Cheshire, which is uh, <laughs> technically not Manchester, but is now part of Greater Manchester, uh, um, but for those purists, I was born just over the river, uh, the river um, Mersey into uh, um, in Lancashire itself and in, in the city of Manchester. So uh, that's where I'm from. I'm from uh, a pretty standard working class family, uh, a non-religious family. My parents were nominally Christian, I guess, um, but certainly didn't go to church uh, or didn't take me anyway. Um, and so uh, I was reasonably bright as a child. I went to the local grammar school in the end uh, to do my A-levels. So I had a kind of um, a good schooling, free schooling. It's an exam-based um, approach in England. And then um, I left Manchester at the age of 18 and moved to Oxford where I went to study geology um, and uh, uh, didn't really last in that field. And so left and was a bit of a dropout uh, and uh, um, I you know did kind of jobs as a laborer as a coffee shop worker and that sort of thing uh, and then I applied to join the police and so I became a policeman in Thames Valley Police uh, and eventually in the Metropolitan Police in London. Uh, I was a policeman for 10 years um, and I was on the riot team and did all those kind of uh, sexy jobs that, that people associate with um, with policemen, all the rough stuff. Uh, so I have any have any had anything but a sheltered life. Um, towards the end of that time in the police, I uh, I had been attending a church since I was about seventeen, eighteen. Uh, I'd come to faith through uh, actually a kind of Baptist charismatic tradition, as you can see in what I'm wearing. That that's not where I am now, but that's uh, uh, that's where I encountered uh, the gospel, if you like. I knew the stories of Jesus, but I'd not seen uh, faith in action uh, before that. Um, as I deepened my um, scholarly uh, uh, understanding of Christianity, of church history, um, I uh, felt called to the priesthood. Um, I'm happy to talk about that at any time. Uh, it's not, uh, I, I'm, I, I hate the anti-language that Christians use. They say things like, oh, well, Jesus told me. You know, think, well, you know, did he send you a telegram? Did he, did he send an email? Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah. I think these things are really, really unhelpful. I mean, they are hilarious. They're laughably silly. They're, they're, they're well-meant, well-intentioned, and, and people within Christian circles understand what they mean by that. But actually, even when I was an established Christian attending church, uh, I really didn't know what that meant. Um, and I know what it means. It means that we think deeply, like any, what any human being does. We, we consider ourselves, we think deeply about a subject, we look for the signs that the way we're thinking, what we're thinking of doing is the right or the wrong thing to do, and we make a judgment based upon that. Um, anyway, I, I, I uh, then went to um, back to Oxford to study theology, uh, so I, I only study subjects that end in ology, obviously, um, and was well, ordained. Yeah, <laughs> was ordained, and then I came out to Australia. I was recruited by uh, the then Anglican Bishop of Newcastle. So I was in the Church of England at that, at that time uh, and was ordained in the Church of England uh, as a deacon and a priest. Uh, and I came out to Australia where I served in um, mainly regional Australia in, in Port Stephens uh, in New South Wales. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed my ministry there. I had a, had a, a great time building up connections. Um, I should have said I was married. Uh, had uh, two children in England, and then another one when I came out here. Um, father of father of three, and father of a whole flock. Yeah, that's right, indeed. So father in more in 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 each each sense, um, and uh, have that joy. Uh, and so uh, I, after ministry here, I was I was here for six years. Um, I kind of uh, realised that really, although I was always in the Catholic stream of Anglicanism. Um, I saw the limitations of that and, and, and really that Anglicans, particularly in, in this region of New South Wales, uh, really aren't interested in, or how to say this delicately, uh, we're heading on a path towards a more um, social justice, liberal view of Christianity uh, than was the Catholic faith. Uh, so I went back to England um, and was the vicar of Eastbourne on the south coast of England, had a massive shrine church, uh, a, a very supportive bishop, a wonderful bishop um, there. But sadly, my marriage failed uh, and uh, I came back to Australia uh, eventually and um, ha had some time out from active ministry, as I think is uh, necessary. And, needed um, when you've been through such a thing. Uh, and in that, during that time, I worked for a couple of federal senators uh, as a, as a, a staffer, um, including Senator Lionhelm, who I know you've got on this show. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, Senator Lionhelm's coming on. Who else, who else for arguments like you? I, I, I briefly worked for Senator Brian Burston. Uh, okay, okay. And so, uh, and, and uh, I, I worked briefly as well as a contractor for the New South Wales Department uh, planning in the sort of media and comms environment uh, before moving back to full-time education with the Australian Catholic University. Um, and that's, where, that's what I'm up to now. Uh, I'm back living in Newcastle. Um, my other half is Dr. Jennifer Buckingham of the, uh, well, for 20 years worked uh, uh, for the Centre for Independent Studies in, in Sydney, uh, uh, a good libertarian. Uh, you'd like her very much, I'm sure. Uh, oh, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> has done some great work in, um, in uh, education, 
in, in science and evidence-based uh, reading instruction in particular, and uh, now works uh, in, in private industry, um, continuing that fight. Uh, so I've, basically, I kind of uh, had my uh, police experience uh, and my um, working as part of an establishment church experience uh, and political experience. Um, and uh, in February this year, I was uh, ordained again um, into the uh, Catholic Apostolic Church in Australia, which is a branch of the Brazilian Catholic Church. Um, and so, so, so for, for a layman or a, yeah. somebody like I'm non, non-religious, as we've sort of yeah. previously discussed in our, our chats, um, how would you explain the difference? How would you how would you sort of come come to people and say, you know, I mean, there's so many different denominations, so many Absolutely. different. Absolutely, and it's very unhelpful. You know, it's very unhelpful, and in fact, there shouldn't be so many denominations. I mean, as as a as both a theologian and as a follower of Christ, uh, that we know there is only one church, uh, there is only one God. Uh, without getting too uh, into theology, uh, yeah. Um, and so we have to accept that we live in an imperfect situation in the life of the church. Um, as, a, as an Anglican priest, uh, I would pray daily for church unity. Uh, now, church unity means that uh, denominations need to end. Uh, and so I think we're starting to see, just as we had in the persecutions of Christians in the first four centuries of the church, um, there's, a, there's a renewed persecution of the church. It's not in some countries, it is martyrdom. In some countries, it is a red martyrdom. Uh, for the most part, and certainly in the West, that martyrdom is not one that, that costs you your life, um, but but one of reputational attack. Um, yeah. So, but to, to answer your question, um, the Catholic Apostolic Church in Australia, being part of the Brazilian Catholic Church, uh, the Brazi- Brazilian Catholic Church schism from Rome um, but maintained uh, the, the valid uh, orders. So uh, the first bishop was a Roman Catholic bishop, and that's continued the apostolic succession uh, to our day. Uh, he schismed with Rome over many factors of which people can research themselves if they want to. Um, but he was a bit of a reformer. This was ahead of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, this was in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and amongst other things, he believed that priests and bishops should be able to be freely married. Uh, he um, believed that divorce and remarriage should be dealt with um, uh, differently within the church. Uh, he believed that priests, bishops, deacons should uh, be able to have their own income, thereby relieving the burden on the poor. They had very much had a, a vision for the church amongst the poor. Uh, and as is actually proving to be the case now in Australia, uh, they closed <laughs> churches where communities can't afford to support priests in the, in the, in the major established churches, Anglicans, for example. Um, yeah. And so, well, actually, if you have a model where clergy earn their own money, have their own means, um, then actually priests can be where they're needed rather than where they can only be afforded. So I'm in, I'm in that uh, church. We're, we're just establishing really in Australia. Our bishop's only been here for two years um, and we're the first mission in Newcastle. Um, but we're essentially, our doctrine is the same as the Catholic Church, uh, the okay. Council of Trent. Uh, I, I, guess, uh, I guess the bit I really love about that's the self-sufficiency element of, of your, your yeah. sort of religion. Yeah. A big question as a libertarian, you go, well, why should the government fund people and 
why should yeah. the church all be funded by poor people as well? Uh, it's a, it, it opens a, a pretty pretty interesting um, theological well, there's discussion. There's also questions around that. I mean, um, you know, if you look at, uh, there have been various models of, of um, the state and the church interacting. Uh, my, my, my personal view um, and my theological view is that, is that where the state and the church are too close, uh, both suffer. Uh, if you look yep. at the, the extremes of the wickedness that's been done in the name of the church, the church can never be wicked because the church is the body of Christ. But when people act in the name of the church, even if they're bishops and priests or popes, um, when they've done wicked things is when the church has had too much temporal control. Uh, yeah. And also, there's there's the, the the shadow side of that. We look at totalitarian countries, Stalin's Russia, um, China today, where actually the state is over influencing the life of the church, where they they believe that they should choose who the bishops are, um, yeah. and therefore have control over what's taught. Um, and so, you know, these arguments are not new. They were being had by Machiavelli in Italy. Uh, in medieval times, that um, Thomas Hobbes, uh, which iron ironically you'll probably find some Machiavelli's books up here somewhere. I've read I them. I've got so. them in my I library. So. I have I have an interesting eclectic sort of uh, reading reading range. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all these things, Father Father Chris. One of the reasons I selected you to be one of the people that I'd like to reach out to is mm. one because we do have some sort of some common ground, but we also have some differences. Which yeah. I think is brilliant in today's day and age. Most people sort of find themselves in really, really small echo chambers. I don't want this show to be an echo chamber. I want to give lots of people different thought processes and create that. But I'm also hoping to to show that to other people. You don't have to be necessarily. I mean, as I'm officially an atheist, you're obviously a, a very committed believer. We can have adult discussions and talk about great ideas and and thoughts and concepts. And that's what I'm hoping to achieve out of this. I think one of the great tragedies of, of our age is that, um, you know, even in having this conversation now, um, uh, that people think that, well, I've got to think the same way. So if I've said something, if I've been recorded, if I'm on camera like this saying one thing, that somehow if I then change my mind uh, or, or have a different understanding in a couple of years time, then, you know, some, somebody with a button will say, gotcha. This is what you really think. Well, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being and we change throughout life. I'm, for example, from very much a socialist labor family. I'm from Manchester, the north of England, uh, although my paternal grandfather was a, was a Thatcherite and a Tory. Uh, so I, I guess I did have some kind of, uh, of, of balance in my family, but not very much so. And, you know, I was a member of the Labour Party in England until I was 20 four i think uh yeah, right. and by that time i've been in the police for four years and uh had a different view of uh, uh of uh, an increased role for government uh and so um <laughs> you know and i went on that natural journey and now i mean i think we met at the freedman conference in 2017 uh, yeah or 18 i remember and uh you know my my talk was on our lady of grantham margaret thatcher so uh you know we are allowed to evolve and, and well, funnily, funnily enough when i worked in london i used to cook for margaret thatcher she was a regular at the restaurant i i spent two years working in in piccadilly circus there yeah, uh, the iron lady was, was a regular in there it was a, you know it was a brilliant old restaurant absolutely had loved the experience but 
it was a real political class driven driven venue. Oh, yeah. Margaret Thatcher was one of them, you know, it was an amazing spot. So that's it's really a lot, of my, a lot of my family, um, you know, my kind not my close family, but my extended family, you know, they don't talk to me now. Ah, <laughs> right. So you've been bitten by that bug. That's, yeah, 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 I mean that's 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 part of this. It's it's that sort of thing's sad, you know. If you can't have a difference of opinion with your family and your friends over just about it, other than football, <laughs> and possibly and possibly you know beer, beer and wine, we need to navigate, you know, the value there. But I mean, you know, you should be able to have a difference of opinion. You should be able to discuss it. And if if you're that offended by somebody else's idea, does your does your argument or your perspective have enough merit that it can stand on its own if you've got to be offended absolutely. by somebody challenging it that's just my thoughts as a as a bogan well, Aussie. I, mean, I would bring it i would bring it back to first principles on that i mean i would say that uh, one one concept that that unites people i mean people who seem wicked to us still have a commitment to this is this idea of love people want to think of themselves of love as loving people unless they're really you know possessed beyond all hope ideologically demonically whatever you want to say you know um but we would all say well we believe in love well if love only extends to people who you like or who do nice things to you or who agree with you or 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 who flatter your ego that's not that's not love at all um yeah. that's actually you know just kind of having your needs met uh, it's actually quite selfish. It's a bit, bit ego. I, I, I like I like you because you agree with me, not because I like or love you. Or it's, it's because yeah. we have the same. We're, we're we're both Arsenal fans, therefore we must be best friends. But we can't we can't be friends. We must be at war if you're a Manchester United fan. It's, it's in. I mean, it's a simple way of uh, pointing it out. It is. I mean, it, it is almost. Well, and, and that's that why we, we. It's actually counter evolutionary in many ways. I mean, you know, we have ways of thinking in our brains. Which I mean, and I'm not claiming to be, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm not a psychoanalyst, and I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a, 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 an evolutionary biologist either. But we have mechanisms in our brains that are quite useful, uh, that are kind of binary. So you're walking through the jungle in India, and you see a tiger, and your brain is, doesn't serve you well if it says, "Well, is it a nice tiger? Is it a friendly tiger? Is it not a friendly tiger?" Your brain is served by going, "That's a tiger. Get out of here." OK, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, of course. Now, as human beings, we're capable of far more complex um, thoughts uh, and ideas. This is this is the study of philosophy, of course. And actually, that reflex goes against our best interests. And so yeah. whenever we reach a binary and I we're all guilty of it. I'm not I'm not um, one thing I am is a sinner. And I know that. Uh, and so, and all this nonsense. From my, so from my, from my understanding, every human is. Therefore, nobody's. Is, is it every, everybody's fallible? Yeah, yeah. Everyone except Jesus. But um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, I mean, St. Paul famously said, "You know, all have sinned and fall short." Jesus was a chef, wasn't he? What was that? Sorry. Jesus, he was a chef, wasn't he? Oh no, he was a carpenter. Carpenter, he was a chippy. Yeah, yeah. Skilled <laughs> worker is the, is the is the Greek word. We we, we say carpenter. Skilled worker is the word that's used in Greek, but um, uh, uh, in any case, he was kind of working class. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I think um, when, when it comes to relationships with people, unless we're willing to um, give the devil his due, to use a, a phrase, uh, you know, people can have opposing views, but hold them with the best intentions and in fact have a rationale 
uh, a philosophy behind it which is coherent and I can just go yeah I, I understand that and I respect that I have this different view and they can respect that uh, it, it tends to be simplistic where we say well everything about your view is evil uh, so even yeah. though I think socialism is the wrong way to live that doesn't mean I think all socialists are evil of course yeah that. yeah doesn't mean I don't think some socialists are worth listening to uh, or have done wonderful things, which actually non-socialists have then been able to, to develop. Uh, so, you know, this kind of binary oppositions of it's either us or them is just ridiculous. Except on the football terraces. I think there's something, there is something quite is. nice to go back to our primeval roots. And, you know, <laughs> I'm good. Uh, no, I love, uh, yeah, I, I love it. It's very important. So look, but I'm well, still well, the stand of Old Trafford and Arsenal fans are to the left of me, you know. It's just nice to think it, it is what it is, yeah. <laughs> uh, look, Father Chris, thank you for your time on this particular this particular chat. This was like a little introductory for, for sure. the, the whole series. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting to you hopefully each week if you're you're still committed to, to doing that with me. Absolutely. And no, we, can, absolutely. We, can, we can develop the topics and we'll do some uh, little ads so people can know what topic we're going to tackle each, each, each week. Um, and then if we grow it off to, I heard a rumor you want to do a cooking show. We can hopefully, when we're out of isolation, we'll do, we'll do some do some cooking shows together, or we'll do something fun. And I've got so, all my um, cooking analogies ready for you. When we start talking philosophy, I'll I'll put it in cooking terms for you. How much fun will it be? We'll have a good time. We'll have a good time. So, gang, I spent 30, 40 minutes with former federal senator David Lionhelm of the Liberal Democrats. Is interview is uh, giving us a, an exclusive announcement so let's get excited uh, let's have a listen to what David's got to say thank you for coming on board first that's great um, what have you been up to since you left Parliament let's let's get started there well I suppose I went back to what I'm good at which is making money uh, and so I've gone back to my business my company and uh, and it's it's doing very well it's quite successful I'm I won't be um, needing any subsidies from the government. It's it's doing quite well. But uh, um, I've also been doing a, quite a bit of writing. So I write for the Financial Review still, write for Penthouse still, and uh, other odds and sides at times. And uh, the main thing that I've been writing is my book. Um, the book is on gun control. And in fact, the working title, and I've got it up on screen on my other computer here, so I will um, uh, I will refer to that from time to time just to refresh my memory. Um, it's called uh, Gun Control, Why, What Australia Did, What Other Countries Do, and or How Other Countries Do It, and in, Is Any of It Sensible? So um, it's aimed, so I've been using my time to, uh, to finish this book, and it's, it's now finished, it's Ready to go to the publisher. The publishers. Um, like so this everything. is a bit of an exclusive, an exclusive announcement that you've got a book coming for the people, and I've got your first book, um, and I've read it. Great read. And now what you're telling us is there's another one coming for people to get excited about. Yeah. So this one is um, is uh, specifically uh, about the gun control issue. Um, it's it's aimed at quite a wide audience. Um, so there's there's people who know about guns who, who might be sporting shooters and 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 have but have never thought about the arguments as to why it's okay to have guns and to like guns and to shoot them and enjoy it. And then there are uh, people who 
uh, not that interested in guns per se, but are generally sympathetic to the idea that the government shouldn't interfere with something that uh, you're doing when you're not hurting anybody else. And then there's all the other people who have been told over and over again, Australia's gun laws are a model for the rest of the world. America is stupid because they won't adopt Australia's gun laws. And the great lie, the massive lie that gets told all the time, that when Australia adopted its gun laws in 1997, that stopped mass shootings. It's a huge lie. And so the book is quite broad-ranging, really. It's, it's aimed at all of the, the, those sorts of people, from the relatively informed shooters through to the totally uninformed who've just heard on TV that Australia's gun laws are wonderful and America's a very violent place and, and uh, aren't we clever for having uh, solved that problem. <laughs> so, um, and it, it, I mean, it goes through quite a lot. And if, if you bear with me for a minute, I'll actually give you a little bit of a thumbnail on, on its, its contents. So I've, yeah, um, I have, uh, I'm just getting it up on screen here so I don't miss anything. Um, so I've addressed the question, why do Australians own guns? I get this quite a lot myself. What do you want a gun for anyway is the common question. So why <laughs> do Australians own guns? So I address sport, hunting, um, occupational uses, of course, collecting firearms, quite an important um, component of uh, gun ownership. And, uh, and I discuss the self-defence self and protection of property issue, although in Australia, that's, Australia is one of the few countries that doesn't allow guns unless it's money. <laughs> You're allowed to protect money with guns, but nothing else. Um, there's a chapter on the background to Australia's gun laws, so the... the um, the history uh, leading up to the Port Arthur massacre, so there was a number of public shootings, um, and um, uh, our, you know, our history, how we got to that point. Um, there were, uh, were about um, five public shootings that were influential, starting with the Milpera massacre, and then going through Strathfield, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney, Strathfield, Queen's, uh, Queen Street, Bottle Street. And then Port Arthur, and um, so the, I suppose the significant point of, about those is that the focus was all on uh, semi-automatics and banning semi-automatics and getting rid of these nasty, nasty rapid-firing guns. And yet, the massacres that were influential in uh, coming to that end point mostly didn't involve semi-automatics at all. Port Arthur did. And there was another one or two that did, but uh, mostly they didn't. I then spent. So the correlation uh, right there is what the same. Yeah, so you know, it's demonising a particular type of gun when that gun wasn't even even you know, the main factor in any of them. Um, yeah, the yeah. In fact, the only common factor in all of them was that they had uh, was a firearm and it had bullets in it. It's um, sort of it would be equivalent, I suppose, to. Um, if a Ford has a car accident, well, must be all Fords must be banned because they're yeah. dangerous and somebody got hurt. I mean, not not as an ad for Ford, but I mean, blaming a particular type of gun would be similar and akin to that, I suspect. Oh yeah, or, or you know, blaming a, a, 
a Ford with, with an automatic gearbox instead of a manual gearbox, even though both kinds were used to run down people on, on the footpath or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of logic. Uh, then there's a chapter on the Howard gun laws. Again, more background to them. Um, what they mean in practice, the detail, the National Firearms Agreement. And then there's a section on the history of guns in Australia. I then have a, uh, quite a, se a, a lengthy section on Guns 101. What I find all the time is that people actually don't know much about guns unless they're a shooter, and even, even a lot of shooters don't know much about guns, as much as said. Um, so what's an air-powered gun? What's a rimfire? What's a centerfire? What's a shotgun? Um, there's a little bit on suppressors or silencers, as the media like to call them. There's a, a discussion with pictures. Um, got quite a few pictures showing automatic firearms, semi-automatic firearms, bolt action, lever action, pump action, brake action, falling block. Um, there's a discussion about the um, uh, those Australian firearm categories in the National Firearms Agreement, Category A, and uh, which we all know as the as the shotguns, most shotguns at least, uh, but not not lever action shotguns for stupid reasons. Um, and uh, rimfire, rimfire rifles in Category B, and Category C and D, which most of us can't get, and Category H, which is pistols and these prohibited ones. And then there's discussion about how to legally own a gun in Australia. Uh, very few people, unless they've tried to get a gun, actually know how to get one. And there's all sorts of stupid statements made, particularly by uh, Gun Control Australia, Sam Lees, who is good at uh, trotting out lies about this. You could just walk in and buy a gun, which of course we all know is not true, and the rules are very strict. So, so there's a description of if you if you want to own a gun, this is how you have to go about it. This is the sort of things you have to do in order to keep get a license, keep your license, and all that sort of thing. Hey guys, my next interview is going to be with a small business owner down on the south coast, uh, Wollongong and Jurongong of New South Wales. Uh, Romeo is a cafe owner, he owns two cafes and he's going to share with us his trials and tribulations with everything happening with the current crisis. Right now ladies and gentlemen, as part of our Resolute TV, the Fred and Chef's here talking to small business owners that we'd like to support during this current coronavirus uh, epidemic and uh, we're going to explore some of the challenges they face. Here on our screen at the moment, deboning a lovely piece of meat is Romeo Harb, who is the owner of Sea Vista Cafe in Jerringong and Home Cafe in Balgani. Balgani's in North Wollongong, for those of you who don't know. Thanks for joining us, Rome. How's everything, mate? Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, everything's blissful. <laughs> I hear a whisper of uh, hospitality sarcasm in your voice, mate. How's, uh, how's everything been? Mate, look, it's been it's had its, had its downs initially, and um, certainly some ups, and and I'm sure there'll be more downs as well. Um, it's all been very interesting. We're just taking it day by day, I guess. Um, we've had to close one of the venues. Just um, we well, we had to close Sea Vista because the tourism based and and whatnot, and we're all in negotiation with the landlord, which I'm sure a lot of other hospitality businesses are doing. Um, and as for Balgani, um, we've got a pretty solid local trade here and um, the locals are supporting us quite well. Um, what we're doing, so we can keep the doors open because we can't serve customers in the, in the restaurant anymore. 
um, we're doing baked dinners for the families. So essentially what the idea was is families would come together, um, just enjoy one of our dinners, pretty simple, reheat instructions for them, it's all fresh, wholesome, covers all the nutritional basics and things like that. And um, it seems to be going quite well. I think we fed um, 180 families last week, the week before was 120, so it just keeps going up and we're, um, we're on to our third week now and we're, I think we're at about 190 families this week, so it's looking good, mate. It's looking good. Oh, mate, look, that's that's excellent in, in the current current climate and good to see you sort of thinking outside the box to try and keep keep uh, your people employed and to keep, keep things happening. It's definitely not an easy industry to be in at the best of times, let alone with something like this going on. Yeah, mate, yeah. I mean, uh, we try and keep it exciting, try and keep it fresh. I've managed to keep all the staff on. Um, that's without the government subsidy. Um, okay, okay. Is that because you're not eligible for that support or...? Um, are you eligible, and you just prefer to prefer to work outside that that scope? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. I haven't spoken to the accountant yet, but um, um, I'm not sure what, what what makes me eligible, what doesn't make me eligible. I'm sure he'll tell me at some stage. But um, um, if I don't have to use them, I won't. Um, and I think with see these sort of things, um, I might have to, even though we're not actually open, um, we might do that just so we continue to support. Um, the staff there and so that they stay um, on board once we can reopen because I've got a solid crew there and it'd be a shame to lose it. So, uh, yeah, mate, yeah. But if, again, if you have to use it, I won't use it. Yeah, nice, which is a very admirable way of looking at it. So tell us a little bit about Sea Vista. We've got about a minute and a half left. So tell us, give us a quick rundown about Sea Vista, where do people find it and what do you do in normal times? Mate, Sea Vista is possibly got the best views in Australia actually. We've got amazing views over Worry Beach in Jerrydock, which is a small, down, uh, small town down in the south coast. Um, and we just do just good cafe food, breakfast, lunch, all fresh, all wholesome, um, specialty coffee, homemade cakes, you know, all the good things people want to see. And you've got great views as well. So um, we pride ourselves on just good value, good prices, good food, um, and, and the customers seem to like it. We're, we're ranked number one in Jerrydock. Um, by TripAdvisor. Right, uh, okay, very good. Yeah, we're pretty proud of that. And uh, hopefully once we reopen, we can maintain that. Just hopefully... Well, well good, good luck in that challenge. Now, what about Hone? You, you, Hone in Balgowny, North Wollongong? Tell me tell me what's the story there. Yeah, mate, Hone is... Um, I've been here for just, uh, just over a year now, and... Um, it's pretty good. We're keeping some small little goals here in Wollongong, and um, I must say we're probably one of the few cafes still open, still operating, and um, we're doing quite well, mate. I'm spending more time, more hours, doing more work, um, just so we keep the doors open. But I have no problems with that whatsoever, um, and I'll continue to do it, um, not just for me, but for my family, and of course for um, for the team as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's fantastic, fantastic. Well, mate, look, um, the team of Resolute TV is happy to support you as, as much as we can. So hopefully a bit of bit of free publicity and we can we can support other small businesses in the same way. So look, all the best with the coronavirus. And thank, hopefully, thank you. hopefully you and your guys will be watching, watching the show. Thank you, mate. All the best. Cheers. Back to Arlene and Dean.
well done. Congratulations. It sounds pretty Thank cool. Yeah. So, so based on a Bellator contract, how much? Obviously, you must spend a fair bit of time in the states. Is that sort of how it works? Do they do they own you, or is it sort of a fight by fight basis? How how do um, they work? I'm actually so I'm on my third contract with Bellator. Um, each one I've signed a four fight contract. Um, it's gone over two two years. Um, the first one was a two year fight contract. The second one was a two. This one's actually an eighteen month from memory. That's right. But um, when they don't own me as such, um, I'll. I had my last boxing fight back in 2018 in April. Um, it was a bit of a rebound fight from a loss I had from MMA and it was sort of just I had a couple of months off and wanted to just get back in there and, and see if I still had a passion for the bo like for boxing and, and for fighting as such as well. And um, they allowed me to have that boxing fight. Um, which is nice of them. Which, yeah, yeah. So there is um, – it was also – because the plan was to originally sort of skate between the two box and do MMA. And I did that in the early days um, because my goal was to be a world champion boxer and MMA fighter and hold, hold um, current titles in both. Um, like I said before, I'm previous, like a former two-time world boxing champion. I no longer hold those belts, um, but I wanted to hold them in both. But after my last fight in 2018, um, and try to compete at the high level that I am with MMA, it's, it's hard to try and balance the two. Like, it's a respect that I have for the sport of boxing. Like, um, the amount of time I spend in MMA is what boxers spend as solely boxers. So yeah. it's there's just not enough time um, in a training week to be able to master both. Um, so, yeah, I had that fight in 2018, and that's the last boxing fight that I've had. Unfortunately, I actually broke my hand in that fight. So, um then I had to have a little bit more time off. A bit more but, time off, get a recovery, yeah. yeah. So, um, but big things have happened in the in my MMA career since that fight too. Um, there is, I will probably in another episode maybe um, go back to that subject from the 2018 period as to why I had that boxing fight and just my mental state and stuff like that. With um, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Like, I'm yeah, sure people yeah, would love to yeah. love to. Um, like just quickly, like 2017, I actually fought for the Bellator World Title. Um, I lost that by split decision so it was super close um some people said i actually like it was a bit controversial isn't that but um i actually thought it wasn't so much that i didn't win the world title um it was just the disappointment that i had in my performance and um how i, I left the cage and sort of didn't put everything in there so yeah i went through a lot of mental hurdles and then um sort of questioned i was also i'm very comfortable in my relationship at the moment my partner and i you know we're, we're planning a future i want more children this and that so it was a bit of a mixture of a few things of like oh maybe it's you know also i am well i turned 37 on friday so <laughs> um like you know I'm, I'm not young anymore as such and yeah hey, so I'm, I'm, I'm 39 and i'm still young thank you very much i <laughs> <laughs> don't have a soul getting old too early yeah we, we might be old for athletes but we're we, we're young in life Oh, 100%. Like if any of you Resolute TV viewers have enjoyed any of our guests, be sure to subscribe and follow them on all of their respective social media links. See you later, guys. Make sure you click subscribe and click the bell, and we will see you next week. So, guys, I hope you really enjoyed the first episode of Resolute TV. We have a fantastic lineup and a fantastic episode for you next week, same time. In the meantime, please click in the description box below. All our social media links are there Facebook, YouTube, and our own website launching to Resolute TV.
So guys, I hope you really enjoyed the first episode of Resolute TV. We have a fantastic lineup and a fantastic episode for you next week, same time. In the meantime, please click in the description box below. All our social media links are there, Facebook, YouTube, and our own website launching soon, Resolute TV.